Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. This episode is sponsored by Rimmel Greenhouse Systems, makers of quality greenhouse structures. Whether you're just getting started or buying your 10th tunnel, Rimmel has a structure to fit your needs. I've purchased and grown in Rimmel houses and would recommend them to everyone. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here with yet another episode of the Thriving Farmer podcast. And today my guest is Mark Castell, who is the executive director of Organic Eye, a prominent organic industry watchdog, making the paradigm shift to organic agriculture after beginning his career with International Harvester, J.I. Case, and the FMC Corporation. He's been a certified organic farmer consultant to farmer co-ops, a lobbyist with the Farmers Union, and since founding the Cornucopia Institute almost 20 years ago, and then Organic Eye in 2019, has been recognized as the country's preeminent corporate and government watchdog in organics. After Organic Eye relocated from Washington, D.C. earlier this year, he once again maintains an office on his 160-acre farm near Lafarge, Wisconsin. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. Absolutely. So, Mark, how did you get interested in agriculture? Oh, boy. How many hours does this show last? <laughs> I, yeah, I, I always thought I actually was a town kid and, and uh, grew up in a village north of Chicago and uh, always thought that I acquired an affinity for farming. In high school, I was studying photography and my high school sweetheart and I used to drive out to the country. And at uh-huh. that point about 10 minutes away, I'd hit the first farm field and uh, do architectural photography on barns and other buildings. But uh, when my parents a uh, number of years ago moved away from a house to a smaller apartment, they gave me a box of my childhood and baby memorabilia. And in it was a book that I had written and illustrated in probably sixth grade entitled Farming is Good. And it had mm. lots of pictures of red barns and I loved animals growing up. So I, I think it dates back to um, when, and I, ironically, as you said, I would go to work for an international harvester um, when it was, uh, I worked for them when they were headquartered on Michigan Avenue in Chicago, the site of the old McCormick Reaper, Reaper works. Um, they sponsored a display at the Museum of Science and Industry, which is I, iconic kind of interactive museum they had uh, baby chicks being hatched and tractors to climb on and and um and they also sponsored what was called quote the farm in the zoo uh, the lincoln park zoo on the lakefront which was a free municipal zoo they had they milked cows there they milked goats there and i think i just loved that uh concept and it was more conceptual when i was a kid and uh mm-hmm. when i I was in college. I needed a summer job, and uh, by happenstance went to, happenstance went to work for International Harvester uh, as a high school student. I had sold small sailboats, and I had uh, worked as an imbe- apprentice mechanic in an in- independent shop. And International had uh, advertised for somebody with a uh, sales position with a mechanical aptitude. So I started doing that. Um, I, instead of being a summer job, I stayed there. They and J.I. Case ended up uh, 
at the time had an 80% tuition reimbursement program. They paid for my college at night and I stayed in the technology and uh, initially. Wow. So share with us, you know, with that, what was your first introduction to organics? Well, uh, a funny thing happened when I worked for these companies and eventually I owned and operated my own Case IH implement dealership in Michigan. Um, I got sick and virtually disabled and the physicians felt it was uh, pesticide poisoning. And uh, I was lucky enough to see at the time uh, the, pre the nation's preeminent environmental allergist. He was an MD then in the 50s when he suggested that environmental factors might make us sick was branded a quack. By the time I saw him, he was 80 years old and footnoted in all the literature. And among other treatments, I had a fungal overgrowth. So he put me on a drug, antifungal drug. But he said, you should eat all organic food because uh, your immune system's been injured. We want to do everything we can to take the strain off your immune system. And there's few stressors in life that we can control other than our food and water. So you should eat all organic food. So I started eating all organic, gardening organically, then farming organically. It became impossible to sell 400 horsepower, four wheel tractors and chemical sprayers to monocrop producers. And uh, I had wanted to get back to Wisconsin where we had more diversified farms, more livestock, mostly dairy. I was in a cash grain area of, of um, Michigan, big farming. Uh, and from happenstance, I was doing consulting after I sold my uh, farm implement business. Um, I was invited in by the, uh, some of the founding farmer members of the uh, crop cooperative, which is now known as Organic Valley. Uh, they were on the verge of bankruptcy and I did their first market research and uh, some of their, uh, their, their corporate name and entity work that came up with Organic Valley, I coordinated. So that was my first professional gig other than some small scale truck farming in, in the organic field. Yeah, and with that, what was kind of the changes you started to notice with the farm as you started to implement those techniques and practices? Well, I never farmed conventionally. I, yeah. I worked with conventional farmers. Yeah. But I can tell you that from my own experience and then since then, uh, working initially with uh, Crop Organic Valley now has 1,800 members um, and uh, working with a lot of farmers around the country that um, supported have supported my work over the years as an organic industry watchdog. Um, the For folks who do transition, that transition... Um, is obviously arduous and challenging, both mm -hmm. um, psychologically and uh, economically. Because um, if you go cold turkey and switch to organics, and there, there, I don't know that there's a really great way to slowly transition. But when you um, uh, stop using agrochemicals uh, and synthetic fertilizers, um, you don't yet have the benefits the day you do that. You don't have the benefits of organic um, management. And mm -hmm. so you, you, obviously we feed the soil, not the plants. The whole idea is to build up the mm -hmm. tilth of the soil. Um, I can tell you from my own experience that the healthier, the longer you use these 
management techniques, the healthier the microbial life in your soil, the less problems you're going to have with pests, the less need you'd have for insecticides. And I can tell you in livestock, the less needs you have for antibiotics and other um, um, traditional um, uh, allopathic modalities. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, and uh, so that, that phase in is tough because it, obviously for certified organic, um, if you're going to represent, if you're not certified and you're going to represent your management as organic, you have to be a minimum of three years from using toxic chemicals. And, and, and I was certified actually before the USDA was involved in the, in the uh, late eighties and early nineties. And um, that was the standard then. So uh, you, 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 you switch to organic management but you don't that day start getting the premium prices that organic farmers get. Now, back in the 80s, I used to go out of my way to, to buy produce that was labeled, quote, transitional, mm. because I knew that it, somebody today might label that no spray. And I knew that was a farmer making the effort. And uh, not only would it be safer, but um, I want to make sure I'm supporting those farmers. So I wouldn't be embarrassed if you're a grower uh, stating that you're in the transitional process, um, hopefully people will want to support your work. But it, it, during that transitional period, you might be really challenged by pests or weeds and not have the same tools you've been used to. So psychologically, sometimes that's really hard, especially for multiple generational agriculturalists that have other family members or neighbors looking over their shoulders, scolding them. And, uh, and then it's hard, again, financially, because sometimes your costs might go up. You might, it might be more labor intensive, and, uh, but you're not getting those premiums. But the, the rewards will come. And psychologically, I think the rewards are really big to steward um, God's creation without poisoning it. Uh, Joan Goodall once said, who would have thought it would be logical to poison all over the earth and poison all over the food we're going to eat? Mm. So I can't think of a more important occupation in our society than growing food. It's something that gave me a tremendous amount of pride. It gives me pride to be, I call myself a hired man. I work for farmers. I work for people who get their hands dirty for a living or crack a sweat and, um, and you folks have my um, extreme respect. And, um, and so there's some satisfaction of doing the job. We all need to eat, we need to make a living. So the money is not inconsequential, but uh, boy, what pride it is to create beautiful food, to nurture families and to uh, sustain the earth in a responsible manner. Mm, absolutely. Now, with being a watchdog, talk to me a little bit more about kind of some of the work you do in that regard. Sure. Well, I got well, into this. Well, maybe field. we should back up. Maybe we should back up sure. to where, where did organic go wrong? Why do we need a watchdog? <laughs> I think it, we kind of intertwined. So the origin story, I, I was working as a consultant for a number of major companies include, well, I shouldn't say major, but uh, mostly farmer co-ops 
I worked for uh, what's now Organic Valley, and mm -hmm. I was working for the country's largest uh, sheep dairy co-op and the largest uh, country's largest goat dairy co-op. Uh, and we had a project, my consulting firm, to monitor what I call the corporate attack on organics. So in the beginning, uh, conventional agriculture was very uh, threatened by organics. If organic food was good, it must mean their food was bad. And uh, so they were funding group, uh, there were a lot of um, kind of extreme right-wing conservative think tanks that were being funded by the chemical fertilizer lobbies, the agrochemical lobbies, the biotechnology companies. One was one prominent one was the Hudson Institute, uh, Dennis and his son, Alex Avery. Mm -hmm. And they uh, suggested that organic food was dangerous. You could, with more pathogenetic contamination, that it was a, a fraud. It wasn't any more nutritious, wasn't any more flavorful. And uh, so we were addressing that for companies like Stonyfield and Organic Valley. And a uh, funny thing happened right at that juncture, there was quite a controversy on the National Organic Standards Board, the advisory panel and the USDA. Um, for a number of years, some large concentrated animal feeding operations, CAFOs or factory farms were producing quote organic milk. And these, were, these had thousands of cows each up to four to 10,000 cows. Some of them were split operations with organic and conventional on the same dairy in confinement in buildings or in feedlots 100% of the time. And, and we knew the standard said that uh, ruminants like cows had to graze. And mm -hmm. the National Organic Standards Board or NOSB had passed a number of resolutions that would have reined in these abuses and the USDA was failing to act on any of them. And right at that juncture, the country's largest conventional dairy concern, uh, Dean Foods, um, uh, based in Texas, purchased what was then the largest organic dairy brand, Horizon, and, and Horizon was depending on these factory dairies. The principals that had founded uh, Horizon <clears throat> formed Aurora Organic Dairy to make more organic milk, quote, more affordable. And they converted another factory farm that they, they had already owned because they were mostly conventional dairy people um, to organic and, and then started doing private label milk. So Aurora mm -hmm. makes the milk for Walmart and Costco and Target. You won't see Aurora's name on very much and, and grocery chains. Um, and uh, Will Fantel, my partner, uh, who would help um, form Cornucopia with me, um, we saw the handwriting on the wall. The wheels were going to fall off. Uh, th this, this vehicle that we all founded and nurtured with love in part to, to facilitate economic justice for family farmers uh, was being converted to industrial agriculture right before our eyes. So uh, we started this watchdog work, concentrating on organic dairy. It, it then became very obvious quickly that um, livestock factories were producing eggs and, and meat and, and, and other products in, um, in feed grains. We were seeing the vast majority being imported from countries like China or 
former Soviet bloc states with an endemic history of commercial fraud, uh, uh, counterfeit name brand goods or pirated international um, property or intellectual property? Why would we trust them with our organic food for our children? Mm. And, and so we ramped up, we uh, hired lots of scientists and lawyers and, and, um, and in terms of produce, which I know a lot of your people are engaged in and you are, uh, we've seen a, a proliferation of uh, hydro, hydroponic production in this country. And mm. we can debate the merits of hydroponics uh, in general, but in uh, labeling hydroponic organic, which is um, uh, illegal in the EU, it's illegal in Canada, it's illegal in Mexico. We're importing uh, hydroponics from Holland and, Ca and Canada, which can't be legally sold as organic in those countries. We're importing them here. And, mm. and if you go back to that adage, feed the soil, not the plant, how do you do that when all the plant's nutrition comes from liquid fertilizer solutions, almost exclusively made from conventional components? So for instance, hydrolyzed um, or a conventional soy protein is the major nitrogen source for these outfits. And the law that governs organic production, the Organic Foods Production Act and the regulations clearly state that before you initially become certified, you must demonstrate in your organic systems plan, the blueprint for how you're gonna farm. You mm. must demonstrate to your certifier how you're going to quote, maintain or improve soil fertility. So Michael, I ask you, how do you maintain or improve soil fertility without soil? Yeah, I mean, and what it comes down to is organic farming is supposed to close the loop as much as possible. And if you're buying in all your inputs, there's no way of closing that loop. Right, absolutely, um, right. There's no inputs produced on those quote farms. These are multiple football field size greenhouses Mm -hmm. they, the products are grown in plastic instead of soil. Um, many of them, and they, they use euphemisms, controlled environment agriculture or container growing. Um, they, they don't like the H word. They don't like hydroponic. But yeah. um, some of them use a inert ingredient made from the waste product of conventional coconut production to hold the roots. But all the the nutrients are supplied through the uh, tubing that are uh, drip irrigation system that are keeping these plants alive. Now, with with this uh, these systems, you know, and I think you also mentioned on the fraud there too. And um, with the fraud aspect, um, we also saw a case hit the news and then it just came back up again because I think the guy was going to get sentenced and he actually committed suicide. But it was a massive fraud with grain in the Midwest. Right. I was actually involved in that investigation um, with the Justice Department a little bit. And, um, and yes, the, the, the gentleman was actually um, convicted mm -hmm. and, and then committed suicide. And the, the sad part about these, this, that was, I think, about $140 million. Um, it was a noticeable part of the market in the years he was selling that. There was just another um, indictment in about the $40 million range. These were domestic. 
I initially was talking about the international fraud. And the problem is, and we're really advocating for some uh, pretty radical changes in how certification and um, inspection takes place, because the bottom line is the USDA and their certifiers are not catching any of these folks through the normal inspection process. Yeah. They're, they're, they're generally being in, uh, caught when so, somebody just came to me from a, uh, an operation that was buying um, organic inputs and suspected fraud, and they were able to conclude that it was fraud. So that it's employers, I'm sorry, employees or former employees ratting on their employers, um, sometimes uh, former spouses uh, ratting on their, mm-hmm. their husband, competitors. You know, one of the things I like to say is at Organic Eye, we will not stand for ethical organic farmers and business participants being placed at a competitive disadvantage because they're honest. Mm-hmm. And, and so we really encourage people to step forward. Uh, it's, it's not fair to the people who have to compete with them. It's not fair, most importantly, to all of our customers who pay a premium to eat organic food because they believe in it, they believe in you, um, and, and then they're being taken advantage of. So um, it, it, I, I used to like to say that the fraud was minor. It's really hard to um, uh, quantify it now, um, but I could tell you that I talk in my speeches sometimes about two organic labels. In all mm-hmm. the times I've been doing this, I have virtually found no fraud in locally marketed organics. People who market through a CSA, people who market at the farmer's market, who look their customers in the eye. They're generally people who take pride in their workmanship. Um, Almost all of them invite their customers to the farm, sometimes on a given day for an open house, sometimes anytime by appointment, but they're proud people. They're proud of what they do. And um, it's not secretive. The USDA, unlike our vision when we were lobbying for the um, for Congress to take over uh, organic certification in the 19, late 1980s, um, we were all very transparent. Now everything's a secret. Nobody mm. knows the sourcing. And uh, the, the, the law says that organic um, documents will be available publicly. Well, the USDA has interpreted to organic document the, the certificate that says your, your organic will be public, nothing else. So Michael, how much is a trade secret on your farm? How many acres you have? Is, is that a trade secret? Mm-hmm. Uh, what crops you're um, growing? Is that a trade secret? Um, it, what kind of fertilizer you use? Is that a trade secret? Are, are you doing something unique on your farm that's proprietary, confidential business information that no other farmers are using? That's a question for you. Are you? No. I mean, like the trade secret to me is the systems and processes in place which allow me to run my farm well. It's not the varieties. It's not the, it's not the fertilizers. It's not the, um, you know, the inputs. It's, 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 it's again, oh, and it's the marketing too. I think obviously our marketing mix is pretty unique, but I mean, like, yeah, I mean, we're an open book. I mean, the fertilizer sits in the shed. You can come look at it. Sure. <laughs> so, well, it, it's yeah. management. It, yeah. And that's one of the things I think that differentiates organic and regenerative production from 
conventional prescription farming. You know, you spray on this day or you do this. You know, this is a creative, intellectually creative um, vocation. Um, we invent things all the time mm -hmm. and we get smarter and then we share it with each other. But I, I, I will tell you that um, there's not much new under the sun in terms of farming. You, the kind of tractor you use, the inputs you use, um, they're, they're, the, the seeds you use, they're pretty common. And, uh, but the USDA is deciding it's all a secret. Now, I can tell you that I have some member donors that uh, grow specialty crops in, in, in um, Hawaii. Mm -hmm. If you're one of only a few uh, U.S. growers of, let's say, macadamia nuts, then how many acres you're growing might be uh, valuable for your competitors to know. And any kind of material like that can be protected under the Freedom of Information Act. And, but I, I think the default should be we should all be transparent, 100% open. And then if a farmer is doing something unique and it has a, an invention that no one else has, they should be able to protect that. But you know, generally, the, these giant CAFOs, I've been able to find out, you know, the not like the average dairy farmer in the United States that has, last time we did a poll, one cow per acre of, mm. of uh, pasture, but, but five or 10 cows per acre. The only way I was able to find that out, Michael, is not from their organic documents, but all the CAFOs have to be, are regulated by um, state government for manure management or nutrient management plans, et cetera. And they've had to file those. And that's where I've gotten that data. Um, mm. Not because the organic process is so transparent. There's no, there's no downside in terms of the marketplace to know that this outfit has 4,500 cows and not very much pasture, but it's an embarrassment to them and they, and they want to protect that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think the thing you talked about is like there's eight organic CAFOs in Texas. And how many cows is between the, the lot of those? You know, I never added that up, but they're, they're generally between, um, I think 1,500 and 4,500 milking cows. They might have twice the number of cattle they're, they're managing. And I'm just thinking off the top of my head, actually, one of the dairies down there called Natural Prairie has three milking facilities and I think well over 10,000 cows now. Um, but uh, those uh, less than 10 dairies, I don't call them farms, uh, produce, uh, the last time I did the calculation, about 1.5 times more milk than 453 family scale dairies in the state of Wisconsin, mm -hmm. one and a half times. And so these, that's not what people are paying a premium for. These uh, cows out in the desert um, live short stressed lives, just like on conventional dairies, they're pushed for high production. In the dairy business, we say they get burned out. Um, mm -hmm. It's not unusual that the average life on a CAFO for a cow is one and a half lactations, one and a half years old after wow. they start milking them. They either get uh, sick, usually with mastitis, and instead of taking the time and energy to try to cure them, they just ship them to the hamburger plant, or they are in such poor general health that the term we use is they fail to breed back. And mm -hmm. just like I, I, I'm looking at the picture of your beautiful little boy on 
on your um, Zoom mm -hmm. uh, photo, uh, just like um, our moms and human moms. You don't give milk unless you have a baby, and in this mm -hmm. case, a calf. So through the brilliance of the evolutionary process um, is designed that sick animals and sick plants don't reproduce. So these animals are in such poor general health that they can't, uh, they, they aren't successful at breeding and then they're sent to the hamburger plant. So these, these giant CAFOs have to have a steady stream of replacement animals or they just go out of business. And so consumers think they're paying for a different kind of environmental ethic, a more humane animal husbandry uh, um, model. And Michael, they think they're supporting economic justice for family farmers. When they find out that the people milking the cow, cows are um, too often exploited, very hardworking immigrant laborers, in many cases, literally living in trailers, baking in the desert sun, that doesn't seem right. It doesn't mm. seem organic. And, and so we're trying to put pressure on the USDA, on the brands that are involved. And, uh, but it, this is very, very lucrative. And, and in the United States, money talks pretty loudly. Mm -hmm. Now, and what do you feel organic is? What do you think, what, what do you feel like the overarching principles of the system need to be? You know, we invented organic mm -hmm. before it was codified in law. And, and it, was a, it was a private label when it started. Well, it was an unregulated label. <clears throat> and that's why, uh, you know, be, for, be careful what you ask for. You might actually get it. I, I was a proponent of asking the USDA to get involved. Mm. It's been a disaster. <clears throat> Many farmers, one of my mentors was Elliot Coleman. You might know Elliot. Yes, Elliot's an incredible guy. Yes. Incredible guy. And we're still in touch very regularly on the phone or email and once in a while we see each other, but uh, he really was hell bent against the USDA. He is not certified organic. Uh -huh. he, you know, he uses the O word and he says, come and get me to the USDA. Um, and, uh, but we all knew what organic was. And it was, as you're suggesting, uh, as closed loop as we could, sustainable meant not bringing um, materials off the farm as much as possible. And, um, and recycling nutrients. Uh, we all thought that uh, livestock kind of needed to be in the mix, both for uh, soil nutrients, because part of organics, and it's, and it's in the law, but it's really abused, is that, that you're in your crop rotation, you're supposed to grow a soil building crop. And from our standpoint, that was always something like three years of alfalfa. And mm. um, in Wisconsin, where a lot of farms qualified for organic almost right away, because if you had 40 dairy cows, you were recycling the, um, I'll use my neighbor as an example, who had at the time, it's organic now, but a small conventional herd. Uh, he recycled the manure. He uh, planted uh, oats as a nurse crop, harvested that, and then the alfalfa would grow up for three years after that. He would plow that down, and as we say, take fertilizer credits. So those legumes were worth nitrogen in the soil. And, and so when he planted, he might've used some starter synthetic starter fertilizer in the planter if he's planting corn, mm. uh, but that was it. He never used insecticides. He never used herbicides because he rotated his crops. 
So he was almost organic. And uh, so we, we needed to have strong cultural practices that prevented plant disease and animal disease instead of using chemical means to remediate them and, uh, and build up the soil fertility naturally. So that's what organic food is. And, and the result is, you know, nutritional density. Um, we're now learning, I, I didn't talk this language um, in the eighties when I started growing organically, but we now are learning more and more about the uh, microbiome in the soil, how that relates to the mm -hmm. microbiome in our guts and how close a relationship that has to human health. And uh, so we basically, you know, these conditions in the hydroponic uh, greenhouses are basically sterile. We, if you're growing row crops and your nitrogen sources and hydrous ammonia, you're killing all these microorganisms in the soil that break down organic matter and create, you know, nutrients. If your crop rotation is corn on corn on corn, you're, and you're just worried about N, P, and K, and your crops are bred for nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus levels, aiming at big yields, forget about flavor and nutrition again. Uh, if that's your crop rotation, you're quickly gonna deplete the micronutrients, the boron, the manganese, uh, chromium, all these things, not to mention killing this microbial soil life, which is, you know, fundamental to all life. And uh, so that's what organic farming is about. It's about farming in consort with nature rather than trying to dominate it. And the results are wonderful, but it's the transition is difficult. And economically, we're having to compete against forces that are subsidizing unsustainable agriculture. And that makes organics look expensive. If, you, if we added all the externalities, the polluted water, uh, the cancer, the, the other factors that are a direct result of our contaminated and nutrient weak diet, conventional food would be much more expensive than organic food. You know, we, we used to spend about 8% of our gross national product, not that long ago, just a few decades ago, 8% of our gross national product on healthcare and about 15 or 16% on food. That's completely reversed itself. Mm. We're now pushing 20% on healthcare and uh, seven or 8% on food. So we have the cheapest food in the world and the most expensive healthcare. And even with that most expensive healthcare, we're not treating everyone like some countries do uh, with universal healthcare. And, but our, even with those investments we're making, the health outcomes are abysmal. Our, our birth weight, our infant mortality weight, our chronic diseases and cancers, um, obesity, they're all off the Richter scale compared to other developing countries. We're getting a really, really poor return on our investment, Michael. Mm. Yeah, and it's costing us. Now, the question obviously comes back to B is, unfortunately, it comes back to, as Americans, we've expected cheap food, and then we expect the healthcare companies to take care of our expensive healthcare. So, you know, as you said, you know, again, we flipped it from going from food to spending the money on healthcare. How do we get people to actually switch it back? I mean, 
unfortunately, the short term doesn't make monetary sense, is, if, if you get what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, people are voting with their pocketbooks. Uh-huh. And, and the people who are signed up to be your customers, they're paying more than they do at Safeway or, or, or um, Walmart for their food. But they, they're, they've educated themselves to know that um, they're practicing preventative medicine. Um, mm. I, I sat down at a conference. I think I, I did a keynote speech at the Weston A. Price Foundation. I don't know if you're familiar mm-hmm. with that group. Absolutely, yeah. And, and uh, this was a number of years ago at, um, uh, in San Francisco. I'm really proud. In fact, in my office, I'm looking at right now, uh, Sally Fallon, their director, awarded me the Activist of the Year Award, and it says 2008. And um, so I don't know if it was morning before or be morning after um, uh, the, the keynote, and I was singing Doc in the, on the Bay because we, we were right on the San Francisco Bay where the hotel was. Um, I sat down for breakfast, and it was a breakfast with eggs and bacon and oatmeal and fresh fruits and and butter and just really rich, wonderful food. And, and I sat down uh, with Kay Craig, who was a dairy farmer I knew from Wisconsin. So we just bumped into each other at this conference. And she said something, and I'll tell you, I've learned a lot from farmers over the years. She said, how do you think this would impact society if everyone ate this way every day? Mm. And I thought about it for a while. And I, I think I've incorporated this into some other talks, but. Michael, virtually every unit of government in the United States is, is financially stressed. We're cutting back on, on services to the people because we can't afford the health care for our employees, our public employees. So every um, uh, small town and village and city and school board and state and federal government, we're bankrupting ourselves. Companies can't afford it. We're shifting more of that expense to the, um, to the employee and the employees are taking more risk. And uh, so it would be, there would be a tremendous return on investment if publicly we changed our budgeting. But in the meantime, we all have the power. And even though the majority of your listeners might be farmers, we're all consumers too. We all are the eaters. Besides for eating the food on your farm, if you're a produ- if you're growing produce, you might buy dairy or meat or eggs. Um, you, uh, I eat as locally as possible, and here in Vernon County, Wisconsin, it's thought we might have more organic farmers than any county in the entire United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have. I'm a member of a couple food co-ops. It looks like a farmers market seven days a week. I get a CSA box every week. I'll be at the farmers market tomorrow. I am rich, I am blessed. Um, So we can make that choice for our own families. uh, And there are more and more people, I had an employee a few years ago that had, I think three kids at the time, a modest income. He he drove used cars, he had a nice house, but it wasn't that fancy. Everybody in this family didn't have the latest iPhone, but he bought all organic food at the food co-op. He understood that um, during especially development in utero, as the children were young, that the dividends lifelong for having an organic and nutrient-rich diet were invaluable. And, uh, and so I think more and more people recognize that. 
we're willing, I'm not going to say so much of a sacrifice, but we're willing to reallocate our resources on less things and more, uh, more of what really matters. And food, there, there really isn't anything more important for your family than investing in the highest quality food you can find. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that is a personal choice you have to make because I mean, that's our families. We make a personal choice. And, and again, we don't spend a lot on other things, but food is the number one expense in our house besides our mortgage, because we're paying for a farm, <laughs> but um, um, hopefully it'll pay off in the yeah, long run, your yes. mortgage too, you <laughs> and other people eating your food. Yes. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I think the biggest, so like, obviously we can't force every family to, you know, not go to the Dairy Queen or not go to the Arby's, but into buy organic food. But what we can do is educate them on the aspect of, you know, what it means to buy better. And again, we're not going to change them overnight, but it's, you know, it's typically a step at a time, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'll tell you, it, it's, it's a crisis that usually pushes some people. I mean, some people are just thirsty for knowledge and they're coming because Uh they think it's a great idea, but it's all too common that it's somebody in the family that got cancer or something Uh in the news. I can tell you back when I was first farming, you know what Alar is? No, you might not even been born yet, but um, back in the um, seventies, I think uh, there was the Alar scare. It made 60 minutes. It was a growth retardant that they were spraying on apples that was found to be carcinogenic. And, mm-hmm. and almost overnight, you couldn't find organic produce. And then all the grocery wow. stores wanted organic produce. So every time there's a new problem with some way they're producing our food, more and more people have this aha wake up moment. But I can tell you one of the most satisfying parts about doing my job is learning from farmers, as I said. And and I asked the question all the time, and you asked it in, in, a, in a way to me, but I asked people, why did you first switch to organics? Mm. And I, I'll just share two quick stories with you. Ray, and these are both f- founders of the uh, crop cooperative. They were both dairy farmers. And crop uh, organic value originally started as a vegetable co-op, but seven of their vegetable growers who used to grow tobacco, so it was a similar um, labor and machinery practice. So that's why we were switching over in this region on the West coast of Wisconsin, hilly kind of the Appalachian of the Midwest. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, They said, well, why can't we do anything with our cheese? And that, that was, that's been the driver at OV ever since. But um, I asked Ray Haas why he became organic. Ray was a very mild mannered man. I was on his farm overlooking on the ridge, overlooking the Mississippi. I'll tell you, you, he'd been organic for many years before there was a premium market. His rows of corn were as clean as a whistle. There wasn't a weed out there. It was just a beautiful farm. And he said, Mark, one day, one of my adult children who was farming with me got sick from handling a material on the farm. And he came in at lunch and he banged his fist on the table and he said, God dang it, uh, to his wife, we're going to quit farming with chemicals or we're going to quit farming. Mm. And I think Ray was the third generation on that farm. He was never intending to quit, but he taught himself how to be a master farmer. And then there was um, Bill Welsh, who was a good friend and on my board of directors for many years. Um, Bill was a livestock producer, hogs and chickens and beef cattle. And, um, and one day before he was organic, 
his cows started all getting sick, really sick. And then they started dying. Mm. And the most traumatic thing was one of his sons was getting married. He had to leave the farm and all his neighbors came to help him. It's hard for me to tell this story, Michael, because I know the emotion involved for that family. Mm. And, um, and so they got the University of Minnesota. He, uh, he was in Lansing, Iowa, close to the Minnesota border. And they got the veterinary hospital, the University of Minnesota involved in analyzing what was going on. They couldn't figure it out. And then uh, Bill found a discarded insecticide bag that was sitting in a shed that round bales had sat on it. And he fed a round bale oh. uh, to the cows that had sat on this bag, the outside of this bag. It was a material that Bill said he had um, studied in biological warfare school during the Korean War. Bill's now passed, Bill and, and um, Ray Hasser both passed away now. And uh, he was incensed that, mm. and, and he too said, we will never have anything on our farm like that again. And he educated himself. So uh, I, I think it, it's a crisis that brings many people. Now there's a market. People will say, mm -hmm. I want to be organic because I want to be an astute entrepreneur and meet the need. But I think most organic farmers, especially small ones, they're here because they want to eat the food they grow and, and they believe in organics. And um, it's so wonderful, the accolades we get, I don't have to tell you, from our customers that um, they truly appreciate what we're doing. And, and to me, when I was farming, that was worth a million bucks. Yeah. Nelson Carrot, Satakoi Melon, Buffalo Tomatoes, Megatron Leak. What do all these varieties have in common? Well, they're all dinosaurs or varieties that were dropped by the trade for one reason or another. So what do smart growers do? Well, if they can, they buy a bunch of seed before it goes out of stock and freeze it while they scramble to find new varieties that are going to work better. But the problem is that eventually seed vitality goes down and the seed is no longer good. Is there anything you can do to revive the seeds? Well, introducing Ultra, an organic seed treatment, or as I like to say, a seed defibrillator. To back up a bit, we were able to get 20 kernels of what we now call Gill's Select, a rare Indian corn variety from Gill's Sweet Corn Farm in the Hudson Valley. We grew it out, distributed it to a number of farmers, and then life happened. About a decade later, I found the seed at the bottom of our freezer, and we took most of the seeds and tried to germinate them in a greenhouse. Only a few came up. Not enough to have good genetic diversity. Last year, with only a few handfuls left and a Hail Mary attempt, I soaked them with Ultra for 24 hours, then struck them into some trays and popped them into our germ chamber. 72 hours later, we started seeing shoots, and this year, even with an eight-week drought, we had a wonderful yield of corn. We sold some and kept back most of it for future seed stock. I'm confident that we wouldn't have been able to continue this lost variety without Ultra. Here's the best news yet. AgriGrow has agreed to offer a 10% discount to all thriving farmer listeners. Simply use the coupon code THRIVE when you check out. Again, that is T-H-R-I-V-E for a 10% off discount on your first order. Go to smallfarm.solutions for more information. Well, I, I think 
a lot of the times farmers face the struggle of just keeping up. And I think that has been perpetuated by a USDA and a government which is trying to push cheap food because cheap food is an easy way to keep people complacent and compliant. Um, and so that farmers are trying to just keep up. So when farmers are just trying to keep up, they don't have time or effort or energy to start looking at what's actually going on. They're just trying to make the ends meet. When farmers actually have the time and, and the, the few that actually take a step back and say, wait a minute, what's actually going on? And they start to see the light, then they can start making those decisions. And, and I think that happened back in the day, but now that there's a price increase, I think that's where we're seeing this aspect of the, I don't know if you, the uh, just watering down, um, you know, I want to keep it a family friendly podcast, but um, <laughs> of the, the systems of, um, of what organic used to be. And, you know, that's where we're getting into these giant CAFOs, which, you know, are, are still polluting the water systems. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's not organic. And, yeah. and I, you know, we, we have a cheap food policy in this country. Mm -hmm. And, and one of the things that's done is create more um, disposable income from the average worker so they can buy more things from China or wherever they're built. So this is a redistribution of wealth. Uh, I, I hate to say it, but farmers on food stamps is not an oxymoron. Uh, mm. You folks qualify for SNAP and qualify for subsidized health care and qualify for other federal and state support programs and take advantage of them because you're being taken advantage of. And But a lot of working people, they don't have time either. If they've kind of broken the union, so to speak, that between... Uh, working 40 plus hours and and both spouses having to work to make ends meet. It's not optional for middle-class mm -hmm. families. It's never been for many working families. Um, and, and that's if you have one job a piece. A lot of people have more than one job. Mm -hmm. And so we have a rat race going on here. So I, I, I really encourage growers out there to take care of themselves, both personally and professionally. And one thing I'd recommend uh, I did it all the time when I was farming and, and I've been lucky enough to attend these conferences and make speeches around the country, whether it's a PASA in Pennsylvania or EcoFarm in California or uh, the Moses uh, conference in, in Wisconsin, which is the biggest in the country, um, uh, taking three or four days and investing a few hundred dollars in continuing education will benefit you professionally, but the biggest benefit are all those meetings in the hallways of some of our friends mm -hmm. that we see once a year that are farming and working just as hard as we are and sharing ideas and sharing friendships and sharing meals. And if you're not doing that now, uh, and most of them are during um, meeting season, which is usually um, January, February, March. And uh, it's not like many of us aren't still busy then, but um, make it a point to get away when you can, um, because burnout is a problem for farmers. Um, and uh, we should make the opportunity to enrich our lives whenever we can. And of course, that, that trip, and you can take your family along in the car with you, is a business expense to um, put against your income. So Uncle Sam will pay for 30% or something of like that. And um, so really invest in yourselves and take care of yourself. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, one other thing that you recently did a um, op-ed and you talked about the challenges and the problems with faux milks. Yeah, I, I was re- responding to uh, something that was published stating that the complaints the dairy industry had about labeling plant-based beverages, quote, milk, soy milk or almond milk, um, was just a bunch of fooey and that um, they should just give it up. And, and I really, we're neutral at Organic Eye in terms of people's dietary choices, whether they're vegans and, and whether they're vegans for ethical reasons or they perceive a health benefit or they're vegetarians or they eat raw food. Uh, we think everyone should have the safest, nutritionally superior food and authentic, not fraudulent. And, uh, but in terms of these plant-based beverages, calling them milk, uh, none of them have the protein levels that milk have. So they're not equivalent. Um, some of them have no protein. Uh, in terms of other nutrients, many of them are supplied by synthetic um, supplements or, or other mined materials, gypsum, uh, and for calcium. Um, and... So the concern is that there's a kind of an orgy of investment money going into these uh, dairy analogs and fake meat analogs and, and, and trying to culture dairy and meat in laboratories in sterile environments. And so if, if people are, if the marketing juggernaut is convincing uh, eaters that these products are nutritionally equivalent to milk or nutritionally equivalent to meat, they're doing a grave disservice. And that's not to say that if you're lactose intolerant, you should be drinking milk, you should find really healthy alternatives. Some of these things have as much sugar in them as Mountain Dew or a Snickers bar, Uh, but but there are moms out there buying them for kids because they think they're healthier Mm. than drinking milk. And this isn't all that surprising. The, The medical fraternity um, for a long time suggested that margarine was safer than butter and, and uh, skim milk was uh, healthier than full fat milk. And uh, that's now challenged uh, in the medical literature. Um, but if you're uh, comparing skim milk, which I think is, looks kind of like dirty dishwater and doesn't taste much better, if you're comparing that to a flavored uh, almond product, um, and sweetened, you know, it, that almond thing tastes a lot better. And, and, and almost all of it, Michael, is conventional. And, um, but I always say, well, don't fear. You, you know, you, if you really want almond milk, you can find it in, in a certified organic form. And uh, so they sell it at my co-op for the equivalent of $24 a gallon for mm. organic almond milk. And so, again, some people need that, but you know, for people who are vegans or for health reasons need to shun dairy products, you can make your own almond beverage at home with real organic almonds without all the additives and uh, have something really nutritious to drink. So um, we need to be selective and not use advertising as our guidance in terms of um, what our families are gonna consume. Mm-hmm. 
What would you say to, to families that are struggling with, you know, trying to figure out what is real organic? Because obviously, you know, they go to the grocery store and they see the organic label, so they buy it, but don't realize that it's being grown on a massive factory farm and um, polluting the environment, not caring for the farm families, that sort of thing. Yeah, sure. I, I think that's a really important question to ask for all of us who really want organic. Uh, first, again, let me go back to there's two organic labels, the local label and the, uh, and the corporate label, which some of that corporate stuff is fine, but it's how do you tell the difference? Mm -hmm. And so one tool I would recommend, uh, let, let me plug organic eye here for a second. Um, our website is organic eye, organic EYE, one word, dot org, dot org, organic eye.org. Go to that website. First of all, we have no minimum donation. We'd be honored if you'd consider joining. And we also have a free electronic news feed. So if you don't want to pony up any money yet and want to uh, check us out, um, please sign up one way or another. You'll get on our mailing list, electronic mailing list and print list, and you'll get some of the information that will help you um, differentiate and help you if you're a producer, uh, educate your, your, your buyers. Um, and, but one of the tools on there, if you click on the resources tab, there's a series video series called Castell's Kitchen. Mm -hmm. And I try to use the 35 years I've been involved in this industry to kind of decode the brands out there. So in addition to the local brands, there's some wonderful major brands. I'll just throw a few out here. Um, Eden Foods, which is a diversified, um, grocery provider, um, uh, they aren't certified by one of what I call the corporate certifiers of convenience. They picked OCIA, which used to uh, Organic Crop Improvement Association, which used to certify my farm. And uh, they, they're kind of old world. They, they, they buy directly from farmers instead of brokers. They buy almost everything domestically. Uh, when I was in the farm equipment business in Michigan, the first growers in the country to produce Vinton, a Vinton uh, food grade soybeans. Um, we're growing them for Eden Foods under contract. And so this guy actually knows his farmers that supply mm -hmm. them. That some of the same families are supplying Eden Foods. Nature's Path is a cereal company, the, the largest organic cereal company, still owned by the family. Um, Dr. Bronner's, which now makes chocolate and a few food items, but they make my toothpaste and all the soap in my house, because make no mistake about it, your skin is the largest organ on your body. Anything put, you put in your mouth or on your skin, Michael, is going to be in your bloodstream. Mm. And Dr. Bronner's uses all organic coconut oil in their hand soap and their liquid soap and their toothpaste. And uh, they're the real McCoy. So this series, Castell's Kitchen, you know, there's one on what are the best yogurts in the country? What are the best organic brands? What are the certifiers you can choose? You know, it's kind of hard. They're uh, like Nature's Path has QAI, which I don't like. They've been involved in all kinds of impropriety, but that's a really good brand. But if you chose, if, if, if you watch that video and I identify the very best certifiers, you could pretty much use that in the grocery store because part of the organic law is that if you, state that you're certified on the front label of your product, by law, 
you must disclose the certifier somewhere on your packaging. So that gives us all a head start. And, and I have one video series on that. So, um, you know, that's, that's a really good way, keeping it local. We can't buy everything local. I have to buy rice and I buy, um, you know, my nuts from, you know, my, my uh, almonds come from California, but my Brazil nuts come from Peru, I think. And I, so I have to trust the process and I have to dig in just a little farther. Mm -hmm. So you just have to be a little more creative. Now, what would you say about folks buying from the grocery store versus going directly to the local farmer? Well, if we were going to have like a pyramid, I'm going to credit my old friend, George Seaman, who used to be the CEO at Organic Valley. Um, it, forget about the USDA's food pyramid. Let's create a new pyramid. And at the very pinnacle is your home garden. I mean, if you grow it yourself, you know it's right. If you buy organic seed from uh, Johnny's or Fedco or um, one of the other really reputable companies, you're, and, and you know what you're using for soil amendments, that's really high integrity. The next step down would be a farmer in your local community that you either meet at the farmer's market or you invest in your CSA box. And, and I guarantee you, they will welcome you to their farm and tell you their story because they're proud of it. And, and it's also fresh. I mean, you can buy organic in the grocery store and it might've been uh, harvested 10 days ago in California or Mexico. You can buy organic from a local farm. If it's in your CSA box or at the farmer's market, it might've been harvested 10 hours ago. Mm. The comparison in flavor, the comparison in nutrients that are lost the, the, the fact that you can grow cultivars and, and harvest them ripe instead of growing some uh, cultivars for flavor, instead of something that is going to be kind of like a pink hard tomato. You know, if the tomatoes that you might sell, Michael, would be um, tomato sauce by the time they got to, from California to out east. And um, so the next rung down on that pyramid would be your local farming people that you have a direct relationship with. And then one step bound might be the food co-op or your local independent um, natural food grocery store that deal with the local farmers. So you might not know the farmers, but they do. And then the bottom, the foundation would be certified organic. That's the starting point, not the finishing mm. point. It's not enough to just look for organic and, and buy Grimway carrots that have the brand name Bunny Love or Cal Organics on it, where they have 30 to 50,000 acres of production. You know, uh, Elliot Coleman will say that if you grow carrots in the right soil, they taste like candy. And he's right. They're just incredible. And, and the soil in California, it's just not the same as out here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, the aspect of looking at that pyramid that way is it really kind of flips on its head head the organic aspect because um again this that california organic really is not doing anything different than just using chicken manure versus you know the 2020 well i i'll argue with you for a second michael if i can't get local carrots i buy california carrots yeah because i, I think especially the bigger outfits in vegetables um they are certified i have not found evidence of them using illegal chemicals 
you know, that that's a rare violation. There are other violations we find. Yeah. In other words, the, 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 the outright fraud is usually an anonymous, not branded products. And yeah. so at a minimum, I might not get the nutrition. I might not get the same flavor, but I'm not getting the toxic load. And uh, so I'm getting something. And, and if there's one thing that, that you and I and your listeners do when we choose organic, we don't do anything else. Forget about the environment. Forget about health. It's we're caring for the people who grow our food. Those immigrant laborers that are involved in agriculture in California, if they're on a conventional farm, there are chemical residues on the food, there are chemical residues in the soil. They might, you know, I, me, I got, I got aerial sprayed ones. Mm -hmm. uh, and so if we're doing nothing else, we're creating an, a safer environment for them and their families that all too can commonly live contingency. Yeah, I can't say the word right next to the farm, right yeah. next to the field contiguously. Thank you. Um, and these children have higher levels of asthma and all kinds of childhood problems. Uh, but if, if you and I choose organic and it's in the winter and we can't get the local produce, at least we're protecting those workers. And that's something. Mm -hmm. something so, so let's, so when you're looking at the organic brand and the, and the certified organic aspect, the worst is typically the animal operations. That's where the real violations are happening. The second would be the, the folks that are hydroponic that are masquerading as organic. And the, 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 some of the better ones would be some of the large scale veg that's happening around the world. Well, there are different problems. So in animal agriculture, either they're being managed in an mm -hmm. inhumane manner that we know that grazing animals adds omega-3 fatty acids to the meat and milk, and we're getting cheated out of those. And the cows aren't living a happy, as um, my friend Joel Salton would say, a happy cow life. Um, uh, and But also the feed, if the feed is fraudulent, we talked about the, the fraud here um, from Randy Constant. It was the guy you were referencing that committed suicide. Mm -hmm. the, the, all that bogus the commodities, the corn and the soy, those were fed to chickens uh, producing meat or eggs or cows. And so we were getting cheated there too. And um, obviously hydroponic were being cheated out of all that magic in the soil that becomes in our food. So um, I, I, I think there are lots of things to be concerned with, but focus on local produ production um, you know, apples, I don't know any, uh, most of the apples come from uh, Washington state. It's, <clears throat> I think the largest in dollar volume export crop we have in organics. And so, uh, you know, we're competing with these big corporate agribusinesses growing apples in the Midwest. They might have 50 acres of organic apples surrounded by 500 acres of conventional. It's a lot easier for them to deal with pest control when their organic is in, in an island uh, in between, you know, surrounded by chemicals. And they're obviously for certification, they're supposed to be a buffer. So I don't know that it's drifting on them. It's certainly a risk. But, uh, you know, so I, I buy, I stock up on local apples. I have some trees on my farm. I fill up the bottom of my refrigerator. But when I run out, I buy apples from um, Washington or Argentina, depending on the season. I've got to trust it. And that's why it's worth fighting to protect the organic label because whether it's the 
rice or millet or quinoa that go with my wonderful local vegetables um, or the fruits and vegetables in the winter. Um, I need to know that there's some integrity in the system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Mark, we're wrapping up here. What would you say, you know, when you were a farmer, as a farmer now, what would you say your favorite farming tool is? I really liked what would be called appropriate technology. So I had a, an Italian walking tractor and I, um, although I had a, a tractor and I also hired uh, custom work for larger, with larger equipment, I really liked that diesel tiller. Um, I didn't have any other attachments, but you can put yeah. it had a PTO on it. Is that um, a Goldoni? Uh, no, but th that's a great brand. This, 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 the old brand that they marketed under in the United States was called Mainline. I don't know if they're still okay. in business, um, but it has a uh, same engine as the Goldoni. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, SCP was the name of the company that made it. There were more than, uh, there were a number of walking tractor manufacturers in Italy, but I also used a uh, Real wheel hoe that was mm -hmm. made in Switzerland. Where, and so I planted either in the spacing for my larger um, uh, tiller, or I planted in beds on, I think it was six inch, six rows. I can't remember if it was six inch spacing. I still own the equipment. Um, but you could have various knives and as the crops grew, you could reach underneath them and, and cultivate very, very close to the crop. And really, you know, I, I was using as creative a technique as I could to minimize handwork. So I farmed kind of on my own. I was married at the time, but my wife worked off the farm. Um, I had uh, Amish, uh, elders helped me during planting season, which was a pleasure. I had Amish ladies and, and hippie girls combined. It was quite a scene doing, you know, some of the weeding in the summer. And then I had uh, Hmong, uh, so Asian refugees that came here after the Vietnam War uh, with an agrarian background, families helping me during harvest. So uh, I really liked, um, you know, who doesn't hate weeds? Minimizing mm -hmm. handwork. Um, and so I really like those, those tools. And, and, uh, if you read Elliot Coleman's work, uh, he, he touts many of those and, and, uh, they're, I know they're available and, and I don't know if Peaceful Valley is still in business, but, uh, it, they're still in the, uh, Johnny's, uh, seed catalog in their equipment section. Very cool. Uh, is there anything we should have uh, mentioned you? We didn't. Um, well, do you have five or six more hours? Yeah, no, <laughs> uh, someday let's jam on guerrilla marketing because I, I would say that the takeaway here is um, we, we don't sell food. We all sell the story behind the food. Mm -hmm. And that's our competitive advantage. We have a story that people are hungry for. Mm -hmm. We need to protect the authenticity and make sure we do it right. We need to uh, I would encourage, there's a link on our uh, webpage at organiceye.com to report improprieties confidentially. We own the organic label. Don't let anybody hijack it. And so when it comes to marketing, I've done a guerrilla marketing workshop at, at a lot of these conferences. If I do a keynote, I do these mm -hmm. workshops too. And, and so we have some advantages in our marketing approach that the big boys can't, can't touch. And, and so let's figure out how to exploit those. 
um, so that uh, people can uh, end up with a heart connection with what we're doing and be customers for life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, we... Um... We this spring kind of launched our own label called um, uh, 100% Kids Safe. I believe that's the one we we kind of came came up with. Um, and it came down to our aspect of you know looking at the organic label and just seeing the lack of transparency there, um, because you know looking at you know what we're looking at with that is obviously you know it's the chemicals, but it's also making sure that the farm is appropriate scale for kids. You know, again, if you look at these massive farms, it's it's, it's these massive tractors. Not that there's anything inherently wrong with tractors, but I think it's a conversation we need to have. Is you know what is safe for families as well. And, um, and safe for us, you know, I think that the mental aspect too, is so many farms get burnt out and uh, we want to protect against that too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, so, Michael, you're doing important work. Um, we're all smarter together. And, uh, and I like to say knowledge is power. So keep sharing, keep bringing uh, uh, really intelligent farmers on your show to share. And, and, and I must say when I started farming, and since then, this is a unique industry where people are, are really willing to, sh- to uh, support each other, <clears throat> share what we've learned, and uh, progress together. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Mark, thank you for your time today. Appreciate you coming on. And uh, we'll, we'll bring you back to talk about marketing at some point. It's been my pleasure. Good luck to you. Thank you. This episode is sponsored by Rimmel Greenhouse Systems, makers of quality greenhouse structures. Whether you're just getting started or buying your 10th tunnel, Rimmel has a structure to fit your needs. I've purchased and grown in Rimmel houses and would recommend them to everyone. So there you have it, another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.